The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Yet, I'm a longtime Vipassana student and student of Gills, and I teach here at IMC from time to time. I also lead the sitting group in San Jose. So, as you probably know, this is the third in our series of the three characteristics. The three characteristics being impermanence, suffering or stress, and non-self or not-self. So, before I begin today, uh, are there any questions or comments from the last two weeks? Anything left? for you? Or anything perhaps you noticed over this past week about your suffering? Or suffering in general? Okay, then we'll move into the understanding of non-self or not-self. And this is a topic that can be very challenging for people. Often there's a lot of resistance. Um, It can be threatening to the ego, especially if the ego feels a little insecure. Um, I'd like to suggest that... Well, first of all, how many people are familiar with the understanding of non-self? Several of you, okay. Good. And for others, perhaps it's new. Um, I think it's not an easy thing to talk about because it's difficult for the mind to wrap itself around it, to understand it. It is really an experience. The experience of non-self is what's important, not the concept, not the idea. And because it can be uh, challenging for people, it is, and because it goes so much against the grain of our culture, it is often very misunderstood. And when something is misunderstood, it gets used very inappropriately, much like karma. Karma is not well understood in either our community or our culture. And therefore, it gets used in ways that are harmful. It gets tossed out, you know, very glibly. And, and it can be hurtful. And I think the same with um, the understanding of non-self. Because it's not easily understood, and not, of course, understood in the wider culture, It can be used in um, a harmful way. Sometimes you hear people talk about selfing, that is, creating a self. And I've heard people say to other people, oh, you're just selfing. And that's very derogatory. The truth is we're all selfing all the time. (laughs) We're always creating ourselves, moment to moment. And the idea, of course, is to be aware of that, to know that we are and how we are creating a self, and not to point fingers at anybody, including ourselves, and make us wrong for selfing. (laughs) It's what we do. And the, um, the importance the truth is that to live, to live successfully, to be a part of this culture, we need some sense of ourselves. And so it's not erroneous or bad or something we need to get rid of. Like so many things, we need to be aware aware of how we are creating a self. Um, 
the self will be with us until the very end. It's one of the very last things that we let go of. And so let's not make it a problem. And my suggestion is that you take in the words today, but hold them lightly. And, and don't, uh, don't create <laughs> a belief or a view or something out of them that will then get in the way. Be as open as you can. And if it doesn't make sense, just accept that or acknowledge that. It doesn't make sense to me. Um, I was telling somebody driving up that many years ago, I knew someone who said to me, you know, I, I like this Buddhism, I, I appreciate this, but I don't get this non-self stuff. That just doesn't make any sense to me. This was a therapist. <laughs> and so the idea of non-self, you know, I just don't get that. <laughs> okay. Um, if you don't get it, you don't get it. That's okay. If you stay open and just acknowledge, I don't get it, or I don't understand it, that's much better than if you say, that's nonsense, and totally close your mind or your heart to it. Then you won't learn. Then you won't uh, get it. But if you stay open and stay with the confusion or whatever, um, and just as you go about your life, this week or whatever, just pay attention. So during the meditation, I said, when the mind settles down, when it relaxes a bit, what's there? And what did you find? Anybody? Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Just throw out a word or experience. When my mind finally settled down from all the racing thoughts of what I need to do later today, then I noticed um, more of my physical like, discomfort. Uh-huh. Peacefulness. Yes, yes. The experience was very rooted and grounded in the earth. Yes. Very good. So there's a lot we can notice when the mind quiets, when it settles down. And this experience. Um, especially the experience of quiet or spaciousness or peacefulness, can point to the experience of non-self. And I say point to because all the words today really will only point to the experience. It's really not describable. And like so many things in Buddhist practice, we often talk about what it's not um, because it's very difficult to talk about what it is. And as we talk about what it is, we make it into something. And that's against the idea. So I want to say that it's my understanding that the Buddha never actually said there is no self. And that's very important to get. He did not say there is no self. What he said was, you cannot find anything to label as me or mine. Very different, right? And this is one way it gets very misunderstood. So, He's suggesting that there is not something solid, fixed, 
inherent <laughs> that lasts forever. I like to think of ourselves as processes. We're always in process. And who we are today is probably quite different from who we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. Recognizable, but not the same. And so we're always in process. And if we see ourselves and life as processes, constantly evolving, changing, flowing, we begin to recognize there is not an entity that is separate from this flow of experience. So, um, a teacher that used to come to San Jose quite a bit, Mary Grace Orr from Santa Cruz, used to use two analogies that can be helpful. The first is that of the constellation of stars. Particularly, she would talk about the Big Dipper. So we look up in the sky at night, and we see, what is it, five, six stars in a certain arrangement that we call the Big Dipper. Is there a Big Dipper? No. <laughs> There's no Big Dipper. <laughs> There's stars arranged in a certain pattern that we call the Big Dipper. Uh, the space between around the stars is all empty. So I, I like that particular analogy. I think that says it so well. She also used the analogy of a car. This one I argued with for a while. <laughs> but but I, I get it. In fact, there is nothing in the car that is car. There are doors. There are fenders. There are mirrors. There are windshields. There are tires. There are, right, all these parts that together we call car. But is there anything in that collection that is car? The collection together is car. But there's no particular thing that we can point to that is car. And that's, that's analogous to what we're talking about. We're not denying that there are these bodies sitting here. <laughs> we're not denying that there's somebody called Burgett and somebody called Linda and, you know, et cetera, somebody called John or whatever. Um, we're not denying a personality. We're not denying that there is a mind and, um, and these aggregates function, right? The Buddhist, you know, the Buddhist description of a person is the five aggregates. Form, the body, feeling, tone, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, perceptions. Uh, we often use the bell as an example of a perception. I said bell, but what is really here? A bowl, a round metal object sitting on a pad with a striker. But we know it as bell, so we call it bell, that's perception. Mental formations, all the activity of the mind, thinking, constructing, um, mental fabrications it's called sometimes, and consciousness. But the understanding is, if we look closely at any one of those five skandhas, they're called, or aggregates, is there anything permanent or solid or fixed? No, they're all, they're all in process. They're all happening. Um, they're all changing. But there is nothing solid or fixed. That points to the understanding of non-self. That there is not something you can point to and say, that is me. 
that is Brigitte, that is whomever. And as I say, this understanding can be quite threatening to the ego because it threatens the existence of the ego. The ego likes to think it is so powerful. It likes to think that it's so wonderful (laughs) that it will always be. (laughs) And in this particular culture, we spend a lot of time, sometimes in therapy, sometimes not, building up this ego, only to come to Buddhist practice (laughs) and find out that it is real. It's just an idea. It's just a concept. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) The idea, of course, is valuable. As I said, the idea of being a self is valuable for functioning in our society. We need to take care of these bodies. We need to take care of the cars. We need, there are a lot of things we need to do to function. And we do those out of a sense of self, out of a sense of this person as an agent. And that's just fine, as long as we understand that It's just an idea, as long as we don't attach to it. And the truth is that once we stop attaching to it, there is so much more freedom. Life is so much easier. Life is so much freer. So then that points us back to look at What do we identify with? How do we keep creating this strong ego, this strong sense of self? What is it that we identify so strongly with? And there are some similarities, of course, and then some things that are probably different for different of us. And what's amazing is that I have found (laughs) what we identify with in a negative way that is perhaps what we criticize or judge about ourselves or others actually becomes stronger and creates a stronger sense of self. So sometimes I think, you know, it's not the person that thinks so well of themselves that has the strongest ego, but the one that thinks ill of themselves, that actually creates, in many ways, a stronger ego, um, a more uh, entwined, we might say, or more um, a thicker uh, ball of, of, uh, of self to unravel. So, a few things that that people say. This is from Charlotte Joko Beck, who um, was a very well-respected Zen teacher. A life of no self is centered on no particular thing, but on all things. That is, it is unattached So the characteristics of a self cannot appear. We are not anxious, worried, don't bristle easily, not easily upset, and most of all, our lives do not have a basic tenor of confusion. To be no self is to be joy because it opposes nothing. No self is beneficial to everything. Doesn't that feel open and flowing and very free? Not attached to anything. So when we're not attached, we can be open. 
We don't have to be uh, flustered or hurried or uh, worried. We're just open and going with what is happening. So we're in process. We're in flux. We're happening. And I love that, that it opposes nothing. It's when we are very attached to something, an idea of who we are, um, then it's so easy to oppose somebody or something, isn't it? And when there isn't that, that attachment to who we are or to some idea or to some idea of what's right or wrong or good or bad, then we don't have to oppose anything. And that's, that's freedom and that's non-harming. That allows compassion. And it doesn't create barriers or um, conflict. Suzuki Roshi says, what we call I is just a swinging door which moves when we inhale and exhale. I like that image. Just a moving door that swings when we inhale and exhale. Tony Packer, also a Zen teacher, says, This whole everything, which is no separate thing, never remains the same from one instant to the next. And yet, Each moment is totally sufficient, whole and without conflict. We are not separate from all this. There is no separate movement of me and mine, except in thought, feeling, and memory. Deeply realizing the beauty of this is love and joy and the ending of insecurity. So... If you have any doubts about (laughs) the experience of non-self, you can see from these readings, nothing to fear, nothing to worry about. It's a wonderful, a beautiful experience. It's just that we have been so conditioned, so taught, uh, it's been so ingrained in us that we are this, that, or the other. And that we must, um, you know, keep it together and act in a certain way in this life. That the idea that that may not be so can be very jarring. So, I said that um, it is very valuable. It is part of our life, to have the sense of a self. We, we need that to act in, in our society. So these are a couple of things from the suttas. Conventional and ordinary uses of self, that is, myself, by oneself, nowhere is the ordinary reflective use of self Denied. It is common in the suttas. So to talk about oneself or myself, that's in the scriptures. It's not to be denied. Personal responsibility, continuity, self development, and self reliance. Individual responsibility and independence is repeatedly stressed in the suttas. Purity and impurity belong to oneself. No one purifies another. The noble path of practice is described as the way by which one with a great self travels. So this is, this is important that... Um, In the Buddhist teachings, he does talk about myself or oneself or the great self that travels the path. 
So it's important to understand that it is not a denial. It is not a way of denying ourselves. It is a way to see clearly what is happening. And to see that we are not so solid and fixed and permanent as we think we are. So this does conflict with other traditions that, um, that propose, posit, a soul, which is considered to be permanent and goes on after death. Um, Buddhist understanding does not talk about a soul or about something else like a soul that goes on, that that is um, uh, separate, unique, solid, and goes on. That that is a a difference. And that might be. Uh, that might be uncomfortable for some people. Uh, it's also very freeing. <laughs> I can't stress that enough. That to recognize um, that there is nothing uh, solid and permanent is very, very freeing. There is nothing then we have to be. I don't know about you, but for me, I spent a good bit of my life being somebody. <laughs> And it was very freeing to understand that I didn't have to do that. Um, I can develop the qualities, the paramis, um, generosity and selflessness and, and gratitude and compassion and etc., etc., without constructing or, or uh, solidifying a me, a baguette that's doing it. And that's a shift in perspective, I think. It's not denying there's a baguette, but I'm not focusing on that. I'm focusing on the qualities. So a few things that are said about non-self. No essential substance. All dharmas are not self. There is no permanent essence or substratum in things. Some traditions do suggest a substratum. And uh, as I said, in Buddhist understanding, we tend to talk about what is not, uh, or what something is not, rather than suggesting what is. So we don't posit a substratum, a, a permanent essence. Two, selflessness. As a spiritual practice, we should let go our sensual desire, clinging to self and the I am conceit. So as we progress, we, uh, we all know, we begin to let go of the sensual desire. And we can let go of this strong attachment to an individual self. And about the five skandhas. What we call the self is a designation more accurately understood as made up of five heaps or aggregates. Physical experience, sensation, feeling tone, mental formations, and consciousness. By looking directly at each of the skandhas, we realize that none of them qualify as a permanent self. we can see that, that the five skandhas are really the raw material from which we create a sense of self. So it's out of these five aggregates, the form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness, that we tend to create a self, a sense of self. Four, not a soul or atman, there is no absolute, permanent, blissful, and independent metaphysical self or soul 
that can be found. No self-doctrines. Clinging to any doctrines or views about self is said to lead to suffering. So I think this is really important. We don't want to walk out of here now clinging to a doctrine of no self and go (laughs) preach to everybody that there really is not a self and, you know, get with it. (laughs) That's just as dangerous, really, and creates as much suffering as, um, as clinging to ourselves. And letting go of views is also um, an important part of our practice. And again, one of the last things that we absolutely let go of. So this from Buddhaghosa. There is suffering, but none who suffers. There is doing, although there is no doer. Liberation exists, but no liberated person. Although there is a path, there is no goer. So, um, modern psychologists, scientists are also discovering this reality as they explore consciousness, explore the mind. They are also finding that there is Well, let me read you what Gil says. In Theravada Buddhism, there's an idea that we and any aspect of ourselves is empty of an enduring, stable, autonomous self or soul. Nowadays, there are scientists who say that we can't pinpoint a self in the mind, in the psychology of a person. They explain that the sense of self arises out of a series of mental processes that somehow provide the impression of an essential, stable entity or self. So that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Even that modern scientists are, as they explore, at least to this point, they have not found a stable, enduring, separate entity, apart from this flow of mental processes and experiences. So it's always exciting to me when modern science in some way uh, validates what the Buddha realized 2,500 years ago. So I think, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, that it can be very helpful in this process to pay attention to what we identify with and how we cling to any idea of ourselves because this is how we will free ourselves. So any idea of who this person is. So I don't remember if I mentioned before, but when I was young, I was considered shy, a shy child. And I adopted that identity. And guess what? I acted in a shy way. And I realized that it prevented me from doing certain things because I would have the instinct to do something and then the mind would say, you can't do that, you're shy. Some people adopt an identity of the sufferer. And it can be very difficult to let go of that identity. Now, these these are both ways that we create a self-identity and perpetuate that idea. When I could let go of that identity, I was free to be quiet at times, be noisy at times, <laughs> you know. People adopt a notion of, of introvert or extrovert and, and then confine themselves to that. And the truth is, we all have a little bit of each 
right? Uh, no need to label ourselves as any particular thing. Oh, right now I'm feeling outgoing, and right now I'm feeling quiet. And on and on and on. You could all talk about certain ways that you have identified yourself and then perhaps get caught by that. We might identify by age. And then we get trapped in, (laughs) I have to be a certain way because that's my age. When in truth, what does it mean? Age is just this body has been on this earth in this form for whatever years, 50 years, 68, 75, whatever it is. That's, that's all it means. If you stop and turn inward, is there any, any sense of your age? There isn't for me. Uh, you know, if I stop, if I just am quiet, I feel ageless. I mean, I know the body is 68, but I don't feel... What, what's to feel 68? Well, the hips might, you know. The, the memory sometimes <laughs> does. But that's the memory. That's the hips. That's not, that's not who I am. I mean, that's a piece of who I am. But actually, the sense is ageless. So I encourage you to look for yourselves um, and see what identity you might be holding on to. What, how do you create a self that then you perpetuate? Because that's, that's the problem. There's nothing wrong with noticing I'm an introvert, or, or you know, I'm largely an introvert or largely an extrovert, as long as that's just an observation and then we let it go. We don't create a solid identity around it. Just one more thing, and then I'll open it up for some discussion. This is from uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's book, In the Buddhist Words, and and I'm just going to read a piece of it. Monks, form is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. What is suffering is non-self. What is non-self should be seen as it really is, with correct wisdom thus. This is not mine. This I am not. This is not myself. When one sees this thus, as it really is with correct wisdom, the mind becomes dispassionate and is liberated from the taints by non-clinging. By being liberated, it is steady. By being steady, it is content. By being content, he is not agitated. Being unagitated, he personally attains Nibbana. He understands. Destroyed is birth. The spiritual life has been lived. What had to be done has been done. There is no more coming back to any state of being. So, thoughts or questions, concerns? Yeah. How would you compare this concept of the non-self with the Western um, view of a healthy ego? Um, How's that for a starter? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, I'm always reminded of what Jack Engler, a psychologist at Harvard, said, which he later retracted. (laughs) (laughs) And I heard him say it in, I think, 89, that you have to have a self to let go of the self. But then he got some flack for that. And he did actually recant. Um, I think in my experience, 
This may sound paradoxical, but we can do both at the same time, and maybe that's what's called for. Uh, I certainly found in, in my own experience that um, it never totally worked to keep propping up this ego, this person. Um, yeah, I'm, I might feel somewhat better, I might do something better, I might be better at this, but somehow it was never enough. <laughs> and simul- well, then at some point simultaneously, um, I became a student of Buddhism and began learning this idea of not a permanent, solid self. And so I found that uh, there was great relief in that. That I didn't have to keep propping up this, this, or it wasn't even propping up. I didn't have to keep creating this significant person. (laughs) That's really how it felt. I had to be significant. I used to say special. I think significant is maybe, yeah, I think that's more to the point. Whoa, what a relief. And, and somehow the two together, and, and in Buddhist practice, developing, consciously developing the qualities, the, the paramis, as I said, of generosity and compassion and loving kindness and renunciation and um, concentration and, and all of the qualities that we value and do try to develop. Um, as it says in the literature, that developing became more important than who was developing. So, as I said earlier, in a way, it's kind of a shift of perspective. I mean, obviously, there's still this me. Um, I still go by the same name. I still have a daughter. I still have a grandson. I still have a mother. You know, um, in that sense, there's still a me. But it's not so significant. I feel much more a part of life a part of, as we said, the flow of experience. And I don't see myself so separate from all that. I have let go of that, that specialness, that separateness, that, um, that idea that forget has to do something. And more, uh, this is what needs to be done. I think in the early years I heard Gil so many times talk about just doing what's next or just doing what's in front of you. And I think gradually that was the shift, you know, just doing what <clears throat> what is important. What came to mind was r- right in the middle of the talk last week, remember that one lady um, fell off to the side. And without thinking... That's what was important. People got up to see that she was okay. Um, we paid attention. That's what was in the moment. And then we came back to what we were doing. I don't think anybody thought, you know, oh, I must attend to her. <laughs> it was just a response, just a natural inclination to attend to what was happening. And so the more... We are just in the flow of things and not so consumed (laughs) by who we are or what we're doing. Um, The less of that sense of ego is there. Does that make sense? It's kind of a long answer. Yes, it does make sense. Um, And it's helpful. And I would just add that if the woman who seemed to black out for a bit had needed more resuscitation than than the ego of someone who who knew what to do and how to do it would have perhaps been very important. Not because they were 
special or whatever, but because they were capable. And that's, that's what right. I that's was right. thinking about as a healthy ego. Yes, yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, as, uh, as you were talking and listening to this, um, and I, I find this pretty hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Too. Um, I heard in a discussion last night something I really liked. I mean, I hadn't thought of it before, but it was about humility. And somebody said humility is uh, when you do a good deed for somebody else or for the world. You do a good deed. You don't get found out. You don't tell anybody about it. And you also don't tell yourself. (laughs) Okay? And I had to think about it because I guess I realized, oh, I like to take a little personal pride, you know, if I pick up somebody's litter or something like that. You know, I like to say, oh, good, good, you're doing good, you know? But I think that's close to what you're talking about. Just you do um, what's good do some good, uh, and then you don't even think about it. You just go. <laughs> you just do it. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you don't say, oh, congratulations to myself. <laughs> now, I'm going to tell you something that's going to sound paradoxical. <laughs> just, just to keep it stirred up, right? So many, many years ago, when Gil first started teaching, and we, were, we weren't even at the meeting house, we were at the Presbyterian Church, And I don't remember exactly what was going on, but I remember saying to him something like, "Um, when I do something good, I don't even think about it. When I do something bad, then I really remember it. And his response was, so maybe you should pay more attention to what you do well or what you do good. So lest we get too caught up in, in any one view, um, sometimes it's appropriate to remind ourselves what we do well. Keeping the humility. I mean, I think your point is very important and, and is well taken that we just do without anybody necessarily doing it. And at the same time, if we are, if the habit of our mind is to ignore, deny, uh, you know, what we are doing, then there may be a time that it's important to just acknowledge. Without making a big deal out of it, but just acknowledge. Oh yeah, I did that. And I did that. The Buddha did actually say that, um, that we should reflect on the kindness, the goodness, the compassion that we do. Because in order to um, uh, perpetuate it, you know, when we reflect on, you know, how it felt, how it went, etc., then that is motivation to continue doing it. So like everything, it's paradoxical, and it depends on the person and the situation. Is that confusing, or does that... No, that's fine. It makes sense. Okay, good. Do you want to get there? Um, about the man in Harvard, um, I, I, right now in my life, I believe I'm to take a look at my self-image. It, how true is it? And watch more what's, what's happening. And, and I'm planning my uh, memorial service and what I want read and what I want. <laughs> uh, but I just thought um, it was important for me the first 20 years. And I think for most people, we know kids that are in trouble because they haven't developed a a healthy self-image. So it seems like it is important to get it, and then the rest of your life is to give it away. And let go of it. (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's what's happening to me. I want to... My self-image is is, uh, false. It's, It's false because I brought in the things 
that made me say, I love the word significant. That was that, uh, two, a couple words that have come from, from coming here. It's significant is one, and the other, this is more, um, not excellent. This Instead of saying it's good or bad, it says it's more effective or it's something. Skillful. 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 That's, that's the mm -hmm. other word. Yeah. And so yeah. that's word significance is going to uh, help me mm. uh, look. And I used to say, I want to die before I die. Mm -hmm. But now mm -hmm. I, I know a little more what that means. Yes. I didn't yes. know what it meant when right. I said it. That's right. That's right. I've said to my, I've said once here, I feel like I'm process. I didn't know what that meant. Yes, yes. It's interesting how you say things and then you have to go by them. <laughs> <laughs> That's not easy. <laughs> right. It's also interesting. <laughs> it's also interesting that you say that because, um, you know, that points to or that suggests other traditions see things similarly. They don't talk about it in the same way. But um, that is a saying from a Christian tradition, right? Um, and maybe others too, that we have to die before we die. Let go of the ego, the self. Um, some might say reborn. I think that's the true meaning of reborn. That, that we let go of this image, this ego. And I think, Mary, that's what's really important, that you are looking at your self-image and seeing what isn't true. I think that's far more valuable than trying to build up some ego. But all of us, I'm sure all of us, could look at our self-image and see what is not true. And let go of that. And just let go of that. And then what's there? What's left? And be that. <laughs> Thanks. Behind you. Uh, I was thinking about um, another, uh, this may be incorrect it, science, but it's the, about the concept of what the universe is, is, how it's made up. And it's either quantum theory or uh, the fifth dimension or, or some term like that that has established that we are 99%, the whole universe is 99% water and little molecules that are connected <laughs> to one another. I, I forget what the real term is, but that's the idea. And somehow when I think of that, and that applies to, to us as human beings mm -hmm. as well as everything else, as well mm -hmm. as all the planetary things, mm -hmm. it makes, it, it, I mean, it's the best humility um, <laughs> thing I can think of to get, yeah. to get right-sized about what's going on. And uh, we really are a non-self when I think of it that way. <laughs> I thought you were going to say space, 90% space. <laughs> space, water. <laughs> we get the point, huh? Yeah. Well, yes, yeah, it's space, but it's connected with these, mole by these molecules and, and all, all, all water. It's mostly yes. water. Yes. <laughs> and, and even when we look at something that seems very, very solid, like the chair, right? Scientists know it's not so solid as it looks. All those molecules are moving around, and yeah. yeah, it appears solid, but in actual fact, it's not. It's constantly moving. Yeah, yeah, good thing to keep in mind. And and I think the way you said it um, again shows that we're part of all of life. We're not so separate. Somehow, the human race has gotten so separate from nature, so separate from life. Um, and I think that creates an enormous amount of suffering. I, I think it, it leads us to think we have to do all these things and we are so superior. 
And my sense is, my experience is, if we just, you know, relax back into the natural world, (laughs) there would be so much less suffering. We could still do amazing things, you know, but in a way that was hopefully more sustainable and, and more compassionate for all of life, ourselves and all of the rest of life. Just, just a second, let's get the microphone. When you were talking about personality and extroverts and introverts, I was thinking that that's a very useful construct um, and that for me, sometimes um, if I'm feeling criticized or if I'm feeling hurt, it's because I'm telling myself that I should somehow be different than I am or some, or I'm getting the impression that I should somehow be different or should have done something different than what I was. So I have times where I can remember that that's kind of a silly construct, that it's just certain behaviors or certain aspects. And there's other times where I get caught up in that notion that there is a me that should somehow be different than what I am. But I would prefer to spend more time in that, in that construct if there isn't really a me. It's just different behaviors or different times I'm a certain way. Yes. Do you have any suggestions for how to more frequently let go of this notion that there is a me that needs to be a certain way? Yes. Um, paying attention, noticing when it pops up. Probably, uh, at least in my experience, there's fear or some kind of threat. And seeing this and seeing that your response is this tightening, constricting, oh, I need to be this way or that way or I shouldn't have done that or whatever. And it'll take time. I mean, I don't think it happens easily. But recognizing, oh, that's fear. That's my response to fear. I mean, for years, that would happen to me, and I believed it. I just That was the gospel truth. And I thought the other times that I was just being myself and relaxed, and somehow that wasn't real. <laughs> what was real were those moments when I, <gasps> you know, I realized I wasn't doing something right. And boy, it wasn't easy to let go of that. That was so ingrained that that's what truth was. And the rest of the time, I was kind of kidding myself. And now I see more clearly that was much more real than, than this. This was just what you're describing. And so it took a lot of practice to recognize that, to recognize when that, you know, usually you can feel it in the body. There's a constriction, certainly in the mind, and on all this about how I should have done it differently or I need to be different. And if we can bring some, some, practice, some um, awareness, some realization to that, even some questioning, is that really true? How do I know that's true? I have discovered that so many things I thought were absolutely true are true. It's, it's mind-boggling. When all my life I believed, you know, I should be more assertive. <laughs> and then to discover, you know what? That was just somebody's idea about what I should be. It's not true. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. That was very helpful. Oh, good. Thank you. So I see it's a minute after 11. Let me just end with this anonymous poem. The Joy of No Self. What a relief the day I discovered there was no me. No me to protect, defend, inflate, deflate, be responsible, do the right thing, on and on and on. The freedom to be, just be. No strings, no right, wrong, up, down, in, out. Free as the breeze, flowing gently, lightly through life. No doer, 
no thinker, no evaluator. Only silence, stillness, even amongst the noise and busyness. Only me. (laughs) So I thank you all. It's been delightful to be here these three weeks. And I wish you all well. Take care.